0: Welcome everyone to Heroes of Gaming, the podcast channel that talks with the people who make the games we love. This week, our hero is a visionary artist whose foresight and instincts propelled a small, quirky game to international recognition, bringing in the golden age of video games. His artistic brilliance contributed to such classics as Caveman, Mad Planets, *Crawl*, The Three Stooges, Quasimodo, Mach 3, and Us vs. Them but there is one contribution that stands tall above the rest. From the retro age to the modern era, his creation of Qbert stands at the top of the pyramid of those honored pilgrims who blaze the trail for generations of video games to come. Jeffrey Lee, thank you so much for being
1: here. You're, you're welcome, Vlad. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, speak with you.
0: Well, thank you so much, Jeff, and we are so honored to have you here you're a man of many talents, and in the world of video games, you created one of the most iconic characters of all time, on par with Mario and and Pac-Man. So I'm kind of wondering if uh, calling you an artist is <laughs> is enough.
1: Right? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That would uh, that would be the main descriptor. Okay, uh, absolutely. That was that was my job at Godlieb Amusement Games. Uh, I was hired as an artist,
0: an artist with many talents. So what was the hiring process like at Gottlieb and how did you get your foot in the door?
1: I was someone I knew, um, a friend of mine, Richard Tracy, and we had been uh, playing music together for a number of years and partying and so on through the 70s. He carved out a position for himself as an art director at uh, you know, Gottlieb Amusement Games. They had not had an in-house art department. At the time when Richard started, they were just doing pinball as they had since you know the 1930s.
0: Right, so a pinball uh, company,
1: right? Right, exactly. As many of the manufacturers in the Chicago area were, you know, Stern, Bally Midway, Williams, uh, Rockola. Uh, I don't know if Rockola made vi- <laughs> pins or not. But anyway, those were the, like the main companies uh, producing pinballs for, for decades. Typically, the art was done by an outfit called ad posters. You know, they produced the, uh, the back glasses and anything that had to be screened and all that. Anyway, Richard, he approached someone that he knew and then presented them with a bunch of pinball ideas. And and some of those concepts were turned into games. And then a few years later, uh, they decided to jump on the video game bandwagon. And uh, Richard knew I was a a gamer, mostly you know board games, war games, Dungeons and Dragons, stuff like that. And I had actually been playing some video games. At, At the time, I was employed at a Triton college is a community college here in the West suburban area of Chicago. And, um, there was a, like a driving range across the street and they had uh, a few arcade games in their clubhouse there. And I used to stop in there from time to time and play, you know, asteroids and, um, armor tag and stuff like that. Armor attack, which was designed by Tim Skelly who, Hmm. once I started at Godly, Tim Skelly was there as an independent contractor. So it was not a coincidence exactly, but it was like, oh my gosh, here's the guy who did this game. And uh, (laughs) now now I'm, you know, I'm working alongside him. I didn't actually work in any of Tim's games because he was a very talented guy. Besides being a programmer, uh, he was also a very talented artist. Uh, So he did all the graphics on his games. Tim only needed help maybe with the audio and... uh, that's where uh, David Thiel, who did the sounds on Cubert and most of our early games there at Godlieb did the audio for Tim's games and David is still at it mostly doing pinballs uh, these days he you know he's out on the up in Washington State produces audio for like I say pins and some video games too so uh, yeah he's a, a long termer in this industry so uh, Richard called me about working there as the video game artist. Back then, the graph graphic capabilities were so primitive that I was able to produce art for a number of games. And, uh, there'd be be one or two programmers on a game, but uh, it was not a big deal to produce, you know, the graphics. Like I say, they were so limited, and the development time was so long at that point because it was a whole brand new whole division. Some of the programmers had little experience in games but it was they had a, all alert learning curve and it so, took quite a while to get something out you know
0: uncharted six, territory right yeah,
1: yeah six to nine months to a year to produce a game so there was plenty of time to do the graphics
0: and this uh, trail that you're blazing doesn't have a precedent yet i mean this is the beginning of everything so what kind of programs were you using to to transfer your artistic vision into graphics are you using well,
1: it was, it was kind of convoluted back then, uh, since we were starting from scratch, the very first game I worked on was, uh, actually a pinball video hybrid called caveman traditional pinball game, except at the top, there was a small monitor. They had rigged up some, I think we did it on the apple apple II. Mm. Um, I only had four colors and, um, very limited number of sprites. Uh, I would work everything out on graph paper initially. And I had like a light table and I did the old animation trick of flipping <laughs> pages back and forth to see right. what this looks. And it was only like two or three step animation. It was really very crude compared to, you know, what exists today, of course. Yeah, they had written a little utility. Jim Weiss probably had written the utility for the Apple II. Then I could produce the 16 by 16 pixel sprites <laughs> and they were burned then there was something to transfer them onto uh eproms or erasable programmable read-only memory chips once that transfer was completed and the EPROMs were burned then they were you know put into the the board and at that point we could see what it actually looked like wow. so that's how it started out very uh, convoluted yeah you know the next game i worked on was a superhero game was never released it had a number of names and there actually is or a couple of prototypes out there that have been restored. Uh, but that had a wider range, the full 256 foreground sprites and 128 background stru- sprites wow. and colors. So it was uh, a much wider palette, but it was kind of done the same way. I worked stuff out on grid paper. I've got in my files over here. Um, here, let me pull one of them out. And well, this is just a random thing. I, you know,
0: Wow.
1: So here's like a grid paper thing. I don't know how apparent the blue lines are. Yeah. Um, that's how I would work things out. Wow. And once I thought that something was you know, worthwhile to use, uh, then we would, you know, using cool. the Apple and later a program that Jim Weiss wrote. At some point, we got our own PCs and uh, it became a lot easier. But still we had the limitations of, of the number of colors and the number of sprites that would go into a game. It was all kind of standard. So Cubert, Cubert's Cubes, Mad Planets, Crawl, all these games had pretty much the same limitations. Later on as the programmers became a little more um, experienced and got used to that system, they were able to play tricks with the memory and kind of actually cram in some more graphics. But, uh, that's beyond my expertise. I, I'm not a programmer or an engineer. I just worked with what they gave me.
0: Yeah, that's that's, but that's all good. I mean, that's incredible. So you're working for this company. You've got all these projects in the queue, and and then what happened? Did a did a golden light come from the sky and land on that one doodle that said, "Hey, Cubert's the game. This is the one." How did all those resources get focused to make this game that became such a hit? In the
1: course of developing the superhero game, uh, which was programmed by a guy named Tom Alonowski, um they hired Warren Davis. Uh, he had answered an ad. They used to run ads in you know the Chicago Tribune. Mm. That's where a number of of guys worked there. That's how they learned about it, uh, the job. And uh, so Warren was hired. He had really no experience. Program games. He was, had been working at, let's say Bell Telephone, but it's not quite right. Anyway, Bell Labs, I think. He wanted to do something a little different, and he was assigned help Tom with some of the subroutines on the superhero game. We were all kind of in a common area. There were several, well, the area I was in was an open space. A guy named Khan Yabamoto was a programmer. And he's the guy who programmed Mad Planets, great reviews and great sounds by David Thiel. And Khan was in that area, Warren was in that room, a couple of the other engineers, and myself. So we would see what the others were doing. And I had always been fascinated by MC Escher,
0: you know, artist MC, yeah, yeah, the,
1: the, the Dutch artist who produced all these great optical illusionary type graphics.
0: Pemrose steps and, and all yeah, that. Exactly, yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. And so had stuff going on with the cubes, which of course go date back to the Romans or even earlier. Boy, you look at those tessellated cubes and, you know, if you let your imagination flow, you see all sorts of things that, you know, it takes on a, a three-dimensional look in a flat space. So mm-hmm. I w- had been fascinated by that ever since my college days in the early 70s. In the mid 70s i did actually punch a series of drawings using those kind of cubes so it was, it was only natural that once i had these tools at my disposal electronically that i started messing around with the cubes khan was interested in that as well and so he put them up on his display he had hoped to do a game with that but management kind of pushed him off in another direction and warren saw the cubes one day and rang a bell with him as well And our memories kind of diverge on exactly what happens. But (laughs) Warren, you know, started messing around with that. He saw a pyramid. and I had actually drawn up a pyramid as well, made a game proposal with a little character with a big nose that hopped around shooting, uh, you know, snots and boogers out of his nose to get the bad guys. And my game proposal, actually, that, that character could operate on different planes of the cubes. So it got pretty complicated warren discarded most of that and he took the pyramid and he just was experimenting with the cubes dropping down do they jump left or right doing a binary thing till they reached the bottom and fell off mm-hmm. and then he asked me if i had any character to jump around on the cubes and of course i did i had already you know worked that out kind of took it from there um you know he added element by element uh, people would come by and make suggestions. And the key thing for the Qbert game was uh, our head of engineering, Ron Waxman, was a quite a character, a very large, obese fellow, smoked these big cigars and uh, had very dry wit. And he would hover around people's workstations and watch what they're doing. And one night he was leaning over, looking at what Warren was doing. And he's seeing this cubert character who what didn't have a name at that point, jumping around the cubes. And he said to Warren, what happened if he, when he jumps on a cube, the color changed. And that was like, bang, wow. the moment where it's like, yes, now there all of a sudden was a game
0: get them all to change colors. That's, that's, that's
1: right. Cool. Right. Wow. Warren was kind of the clearinghouse for ideas. I mean, he had his own notions of what should be in the game. And if he liked an idea, if he kept it and utilized it, if not, it went by the wayside. And, uh, so the, that game grew organically in that sense, as opposed to being designed top down.
0: Right. It right. Right. I know it went the other way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's so fascinating to me. Um, you know when I look at this stuff and I'm thinking, okay, Mario is blue and red, Pitfall is brown and green, Pac-Man is yellow. Why is Cubert orange?
1: An original drawing before I even prior to making up my game proposal, I had a drawing in my sketchbook of the pyramid and the character on it is actually not Cubert, the guy with the nose. It's actually Slick or Sam. I guess Sam. Hmm. He's that kind of teardrop-shaped fellow. And that's what I had originally drawn on him. And I have somewhere the graph paper drawings of Slick and Stam, and they are actually colored orange. Oh, interesting. Originally, they're not green as they end up wound up in the game. They're orange in my first incarnation of them. Uh, you know, we wanted him to stand out from uh, his opponents. You know, the, Anything that was purple was bad or red um orange was your your hero your protagonist or your avatar and then the green things were useful items um or they couldn't harm you let's put it that way yeah 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 um so there was no particular reason why he was
0: orange it just wound up that way well i think it's really interesting that it's 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 an iconic color for the character there's no it's it can't be confused with anything else i don't know you know like pac-man is obviously yellow so it's it's just I don't know. I prefer Qbert, you know. Thank you, Blake. <laughs> I, I think it's great. So amongst all the doodles you did and had all these characters in your back pocket, Qbert was one of them in the original proposal. But did you have all the other characters done?
1: Well, I you know, I had the slick and Slam, Sam guys. Yeah, you know, I don't know when the notion of of the snake came the snake. along, yeah. uh coily, but it seemed like a natural thing. They're bouncing around. You think of Slinkies, the Slinky toy mm-hmm. or springs which i guess slinky's kind of like that so that was kind of a, just what we had of the game then just lent itself to having a, a creature like that
0: right it would chase you around and things right it make right it a little bit more exciting yeah
1: uh, the ug and wrong way characters there were actually something like that in my original proposal because i had these bad guys inhabiting different planes right my original idea was well you can't hurt a opponent that's existing on different plane. Well. Warren got rid of that. That was very complicated. But we just liked the idea that, yeah, they're, exist- they're on a different gravitational scheme. And I think from a programming standpoint, that was a real challenge for Warren to have gravity working kind of three different ways, Yeah, but not for everything, just for these two characters had their own gravity. So it was just a matter of drawing up some uh, gruesome little monsters. And I did a lot of that kind of sketching, you know, ever since I was a kid right drawing up little cartoony things and you know grotesque creatures and uh that's you know for me there's nothing to that all i can sit down and i could draw that stuff all day and and (laughs) hardly and have to think about it you know it's just like the uh pencil takes over
0: that's that's incredible I, i i think um especially when you look at uh these characters they're all iconic now they're all like burned into this retro memory of everybody they love it
1: yeah well that's uh, that blows my mind that's uh it's, it's very gratifying that yeah uh, you know, that that has occurred when it easily might not have happened at all I don't know if you've been to the galloping ghost arcade I have, yes. uh, in Brookfield it's about a mile from where I live and you know I'd seen that for years but I, ne- I never dropped in there till uh, <laughs> Oh my. <laughs> I had a little exhibit at my local library of some of my artwork and memorabilia because I have a lot of that. I'm a pack rat and I save all that crap. So we had a, this display at the library and this fellow named Terry Minnick happened to see it or learn about it in some way. And then he contacted me and that was my introduction to what was going
0: on. Yeah, um, the passion for a, lo- a lot. Right, of yeah.
1: I mean, right. collectors, I think yeah. a lot of these guys opening arcades are actually collectors and there <laughs> there's a collection of... There are machines they got in their house, fill up their basement and their garages, probably driving their wives nuts. Yeah. Here I can share this with the world. So, you know, Doc Mack at the Galloping Ghost, Jeremy Fox at Prince Arcades.
0: And have you you been to uh, Glenn and Patrick out at
1: at Star Worlds? You know, these guys, Star Worlds has been around a long time, actually, since the 80s. Uh, Star
0: uh, Worlds right here. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right, right, exactly. Yeah, Scott Lambert up in, uh, was it Dundee? Or, you know, a lot of these guys are collectors and they put their collection out there for the public to use. So that's great, but I was completely unfamiliar with that. So I stopped in one day then at Galloping Ghost and it uh, really blew my mind. So I got kind of involved going to Mid- Midwest Gaming Classic and you know some other shows. It got me actually producing artwork. <laughs> uh cubert related artwork a lot of posters and prints and all that little little books coloring books that oh, that's so uh cool. yeah so that was a lot of fun when you know covid happened it kind of
0: oh yeah COVID curtailed
1: was... a lot of that stuff but yeah. uh, anyway it, it'll come back sooner or later that's been very gratifying to uh, know that my work is appreciated and uh, I know Warren and David Thiel And our colleagues and a host of other guys, you know, a lot of them based here in Chicago, because like I said, so much of the industry was here, Uh, you know, they're all tickled to have the work they did so long ago, in many cases. Uh, be appreciated still today
0: absolutely if i could just rewind a little bit you mentioned that you worked on some of these games that never came to fruition you spent time you know making the art for them are those buried and lost forever or did they ever evolve into something else that we we now know or
1: some of them have seen the light of day but not certainly not in a a mass marketing situation. At and Ghost, for instance, they're into making what they call prototypes. So these are games that were not released or maybe they're variants of games. And you're familiar with MAME, right?
0: Yeah, of course, the um, emulator.
1: Right, so a lot of that code was transfers amount and turn into these emulations. And that, I think, was a very valuable tool for these guys. I mean, to me, it's just wizardry that they take <laughs> this stuff and then put it on one board or another and, you know, burn it onto chips, and then voila, you got a game. So that happened with the superhero game. So it exists at Galloping Ghost.
0: And what is it called? Does it have a name? Or
1: Well, it had a bunch of names. Uh, I think the version they have there is called Argus.
0: Argus, okay.
1: Um, it was also called Guardian... And this was a game was fully completed, but it didn't test well, you know, back in the day when the criteria for a game is how many quarters did it collect
0: right. when
1: it was right. out on tests. And if it didn't collect a lot of money, then they didn't manufacture it. And that happened with Argus, also called Protector, also called, well, anyway, it's got, it's got <laughs> like four different names. Doc managed to find the, uh, you know, the code for that. Chips were made. Game was put together. I did new cabinet artwork for it. And there's one copy over there at uh, Galloping Ghost. I don't know if there's any others in the world. Might be the only one. Around the same time that that was presented, there is a guy named Dave Bonecutter. He was a very young fellow. He uh, was an engineer. He worked for us. And he had a board with some chips for another game, which also had various names, Arena, Whiz Wars, had been sitting in his attic in Las Vegas for like the last 30 years. And it's a miracle that these chips didn't get fried out in that kind of heat that they have there. But he sent the uh, chips to Doc and Doc put together a prototype for this game, Arena. This again, fully completed game, although we never been able to find the sounds for it. It was programmed by a guy named Fred Darmstadt, who also was one of the programmers on the uh, LaserDisc game we did, Mach 3. That game was restored. In fact, it was a subject of a Red Bull documentary about, there was a series of of video games. Uh, Red Bull was the sponsor and there was a segment about restoring this uh, arena game. Uh, Guys can contact me for the last couple of years. It was a variant of Arena that I was completely unaware of. It's like when the first game did not test well, they did not manufacture. When there was like a change in management at Gottlieb, which had become Milestar, they retooled that game and they called it Wiz Wars. Chris Walker down in Atlanta, who has like the original board or something for that. And he had contacted me like 20 years ago about artwork for that game. And I had some and I just sent him scans of some of the cabinet art. That I had later I found it well I was kind of pointed to it on years YouTube videos of that game so I could see it in the action it's like I was wondering what's going on here because some of it looks like my art but it had been changed you know and I'm not sure who did that by that time we had actually two or three artists doing the video graphics so they must have passed it off to one of these other guys and they retooled it. His big dream is to restore Wiz Wars, which could be the only copy in existence if he ever pulls it together. He's still working on it, I guess. So there is is games like that. So some of them see the light in a very limited fashion. And then probably there's others that will never be resurrected. For instance, there's another game that I worked on for Incredible Technologies, who did the uh, Golden tea and a bunch of other... Butter-
0: yeah, caves.
1: yeah, big, arcades. Yeah, big pieces and they're mostly, I think, in the gambling business these days. But I remember this one game, we called it Bonsai Run. I did the graphics, completely finished game, arcade piece, back in the late 80s, this game was done. And they never released it, it's never seen the light of day, and who knows? Incredible technologies may still have this, this game and all the code, and uh, as far as I know, it's never been put out there into one of the arcades. It's like when they make movies, right? right and sometimes they just are never released they sit on a shelf for whatever reasons it's kind of like that mm. not not all the games make it
0: and how does that make you feel as an artist it's like oh i did all this work and no one gets to see it or is it or is it just like oh it was a i don't
1: know thing? i mean it be better if it was out there for some people to see but you know i got paid to do the work so
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's good, it's, yeah it's not
1: like my compensation was tied to the game being released didn't have royalty agreements you know that sort of thing
0: so well jeff that's an excellent segue into are you receiving any royalties from qbert i mean this is a character that's appeared in movies and a bunch of stuff nowadays wreck it ralph pixels are you seeing anything from this no. many things.
1: No, it's all owned by uh,
0: Sony. So you were commissioned to do that? And you, you know, we,
1: we were we were employees. You know, it was work for hire. Warren and I, and I think David, you know, all got bonuses because Kubert was such a hit. They made lots of money off that. Plus, you know, all the licensing, you know, TV show and all the merchandise, stuff like that. But there was nothing yeah. in place for us, the, the actual creators. And that was going to change, supposedly. But by that point, Point 1984, the uh, arcade business (laughs) went into a huge slump. And, uh, you know, well, our company closed down. There was just like too much product out there and not enough return for the uh, operators. So uh, that never came to pass.
0: It's so unfortunate to hear, but I, I, I am so happy to know your art through this game, many others, and you create all sorts of art for different projects. You do painting, drawing, which one do you prefer?
1: Yeah, it's a different thing too. I mean, I'm very comfortable working with mouse and, you know, I started exploring the 3D world, you know, a few years back working on some of these games and I was starting to get into that. And I've made like little animations, you know, for music videos and I mean, for my own stuff, my own uh, projects. So that's all great. Of course, I've been drawing with pencils and pens since I was a kid. So um that's the primary thing. I've kept that up all along. So yeah, kind of
0: like different. a return to, yeah, it,
1: right. Like the posters and prints and stuff like that. Sometimes that, those were paintings, but typically I ended up digitizing all that stuff and then cleaning it up and you know adding certain elements. It got to a point where everything was kind of a hybrid. You know, so I do. A, I have an idea for like a cubert thing uh some little situation for for a print i would draw that out as a pencil and then scan it take it into uh you know imaging process you know software and finish it off colorize it you know clean it up so everything can be kind of a hybrid very seldom for that sort of work would everything originate digitally comfortable straddling both of those worlds
0: Interesting. Interesting. And Jeff, do you have any like, uh, education? Did you go to school for anything like to, to enhance or to reinforce? Uh, well,
1: you know, I took art classes stuff? in high school and, uh, and. then I majored in graphic design at the UI. So, uh, yeah, I'm definitely not an outsider artist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. That was my question. Yeah.
1: yeah I've got, sure. I've got training. Yeah. My daughter, my daughter who had passed away this year. Um, was very art artistic and, uh, one of her jobs, though, is working at the Intuit Museum of Outsider Art, which is down in the city. Yeah. Um, so that's where I learned about the concepts of outsider art. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they're talking about people with no artistic training, but still have this urge to create art. And so, yeah, those are true outsiders.
0: Yeah, and, uh,
1: yeah. I, I'm not an outsider in that sense at
0: all. No, no, no. It, it seems <laughs> like, yeah, you, you're a worker, you know, yeah. like and you train. Yeah. So that's, that's right,
1: right. And And I'm not. Certainly not, never made a living as a fine artist. That's a whole other thing. Uh, I was always doing commercial work. Right, um, right. Kind of, you know, a wide range of things. I've always been very handy. I like making stuff, you know, with my hands. You know, I like doing 3D stuff, you know, yeah, clay sculptures and, um, you know, woodworking and, uh, you yeah. know tile, stained glass, you know, uh, I guess I'm a kind of a dilettante. I've tried, tried my hands at many things and, uh, and some of them are good. Sometimes it's not so good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, Jeff, if, if you could uh, uh, just share with me just a few uh, a few things for some of our um, listeners that are that are trying to to get into this industry, people that are training to learn and all this other stuff. Um, Could you share with us just one thing you would wish you had known at the beginning of your career?
1: (laughs) Well, the thing I always hearken back to is when I was at school, and I didn't realize this at the time. But then when I, you know, they never had us take any business classes. It's like you concentrate on your artistic development, which is great. I mean, you're at school to do that, but art is a business, and you know, I think. You need to take some, learn some basic business concepts, you know, billing and invoices and uh, negotiations and all those kind
0: of things. Um, Intellectual property rights.
1: Exactly. All that, all that stuff mm-hmm. should be uh, a solid minority of the classes or studies that you undertake is the business aspect of this world. You know, we live in a capitalistic, society. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sure. you mentioned the intellectual property. That's, uh, that's a huge thing. Yeah. People should be aware of that stuff. I think that was a shortcoming in my edu- education. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have a common myth about Kubert that you want to debunk right now? Like, have you heard anything? Like-
1: well, probably the most common thing is, oh, is he swearing? And, um, he is not David deal. He tells some great stories about you know how the speech came to be that the gibberish that you hear from cubert there's a technical term for what we humans when we see things or hear things that are chaotic we attempt to make our brains tempt to make sense out of it put it into a context that we can understand and so many people thought yeah Kubert is swearing and we give that illusion by you know the, the, <laughs> the little balloon full of the symbols which of course is you know a shorthand from uh um, comics and all that of someone swearing when you back then when you couldn't say those words you put these symbols there and everyone understood oh yeah there's some obscenity going on here but the actual words themselves are completely random uh phenomes is that how it's pronounced uh just little sound bites put together they're not real words there's no meaning to it other than what might happen as a coincidence.
0: All right. Well, that's good. That's, (laughs) that's, thank you for clearing that up. I know, I know a lot of people do think that, but it is. Now, Jeff, on your website, you have a whole section dedicated to meeting doodles. These are illustrations that uh, came about, I'm guessing during meetings or how does that work? Uh, Oh,
1: they, yeah. You know, I was never really a great student and, (laughs) So I would always doodle maybe instead of listening to what I should have been picking up. Maybe that's why I didn't learn anything about business, but, um, (laughs) uh, but yes, all sorts of meetings then through business and through other voluntary associations, you know, I sit there while people are talking and I doodle, just draw away, you know, the hand takes over and,
0: uh, and those create pieces of art.
1: Right. And the brain doesn't, actually do much work it's well the brain must be directing it at some point but uh yeah i just doodle i'm a doodler yeah. and, oh, and a lot yeah. a lot of artists are a lot of people are you know i, I have a friend who uh has one doodle because he's not really an artist i mean he's not a graphic artist but and it is a, a desert island with a palm tree and that's that's about his only doodle he will doodle that over and over and over
0: Fantastic. That's great. uh, It's, it sounds like a a little piece of heaven though, you know, just a nice palm tree. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Maybe it it takes them away from uh, the day to day,
0: Jeff, for all those people that are coming up, they want to be artists. They're graduating from art school or they want to get into video games, pixel art, or they're designing their own video game, developing it from Kickstarter or whatever. What sort of advice would you give them?
1: I think it's important. Uh, to an artist to expose themselves to um, a wide range of experience what many artists do is recreate reality right as they see it so they do a landscape or portrait or you know still life uh, which is great and, and that needs to be done You, i mean you have to work on your technique you got to spend thousands upon thousands of hours learning technique how to actually draw the design aspect i think like say is exposure seeing a lot of different Styles and at some point, you know, do you get that inner spark in you to
0: create beyond that? It's an incredible skill. It's yeah, an incredible skill. I mean, that's, maybe, that's... maybe
1: you need to eat some magic mushrooms or, <laughs> uh, or something. I mean, I was doing this stuff when I was a kid before I would ever have had that. Possibly could have had that experience. I don't know. I think it's an exposure to a lot of things. You know, reading com- like... reading comics and mm-hmm. looking at art and maybe just looking at the world in a different way you know maybe crossing your eyes and seeing something combined in a different way Mm -hmm. maybe you i I was reading uh if you've ever read the uh the don juan books by carlos castaneda about a a yaki indian sorcerer this is like stuff from the the 70s and um anyway i was rereading some of the stuff recently and it's probably all a bunch of bs but uh, still, there were some interesting aspects where he's, you know, the sorcerer tells his apprentice, I want you to sit down and look at that bush. But don't look at the bush. Look at the shadows of the bush and do this for hours. So <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's something like that. You yeah,
0: know? yeah, yeah. I think I think it is about about, you know, looking beyond the veil and actually seeing deeper into things. And like you said, expose yourself to um other people's imaginations and other people's creations
1: right yeah and maybe what you're going to do is derivative at first but sometimes derivative is not bad and um and it may lead you on another path where you're uh you know something is springing out of you then of your own imagination
0: oh that's wonderful what a wonderful what a wonderful sentiment that's great advice so, Jeff, what kind of stuff is out there so we can support you, support your endeavors, and just be continual fans of the work that you create?
1: You know, I have a memoir uh, about my days at Gottlieb. In fact, it's about the whole Gottlieb slash Milestar video game experience. And uh, I go into as much detail as it possibly could. But I've almost sold out of that. They're almost oh, all gone. Terrific. So, um, oh, But I do awesome, have lots awesome. of paintings. I mean, if you want to buy original art, I've got tons of that stuff yeah uh, here we go yeah so it's j-e-f-f-r-e-y-p-l-e-e.com jeffreyplee.com uh you can buy the book through there i've got tons of paint i would gonna say tons of paintings lots of little paintings of grotesque creatures
0: i'm looking on jeffreyplee.com and some of these uh some of these prints are in these illustrations are just incredible these are so, so much fun I've
1: got all wow. kinds of little paintings like this that are uh you know on canvas i made the frames myself
0: oh wow that's um, fantastic a triangle frame with a triangle painting in it that's incredible right
1: yeah so you know i got a lot of this stuff I mean, you
0: know hey let's get the memoir you
1: know by the book there's a few copies left we're at a stage of life here where we're trying to get rid of stuff so right yeah you know, my wife's not too happy when i bring more stuff into the
0: house <laughs> right uh, of course well uh, you know uh this is this has just been so uh, wonderful jeff to talk with you and share some stories and uh i'm just very very appreciative of all you've been able to share and inspire and uh you know, I'll probably see you at the uh, Galloping Ghost or one of these places at some point.
1: Yeah, place. you know what? You, you you have my contact information and you're going to be out there sometime at the Ghost. Let me know. I'll come over and meet you.
0: Well, thank you so much, Jeff, again, for all your time today. And, and we're just so, we're so grateful of all the art you make. It's inspirational and it's just iconic. And, and thank you. For the thank all you very time. much.
1: I, I'm flattered. Very kind of you. And thanks for, uh, thanks for thanking me. Appreciate of course, it. Of course. All right. You take care.
0: Right, thank you,
1: Bye-bye.